0: Good morning diners and um readers and drinkers and stay-at-home people.
1: <laughs> yeah, whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you're listening to on the menu uh with Anna Peter Hag and we hope we can cheer you up a little bit because um we've got a sweet program today. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, starting out with um a, a, an icon uh in the world of baking and sweets made Peter, and, and we're going to be talking to her editor, Michael Cerzibon, and,
1: um what's the about book? What's her the life, book called?
0: her legacy, and her
1: books. there's bo- two books, two books included in one, you got two at a time, two for the price of one, right? I'm sorry. One's called Happiness in Baking, and what's the other one called?
0: Um, I don't remember.
1: <laughs> Something to do with chocolate, I think. Chocolate, chocolate is forever. That must be it. Anyway, oh, anyway, that to me? here's 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 the story.
0: Well, there are a number of iconic uh, writers, <laughs> culinary writers, and right at the top of that list has to be made a Heater. Um, who unfortunately uh, died recently at the ripe age of one hundred and two, um, but we we have her editor on the line who 's going to talk to us a little bit about her life legacy and some of the the books I mean the last one was happiness is baking um, and um, I have copies of which are not released yet, Cookies are Magic and Chocolate is Forever. Um, I'm not, I guess I mentioned right at, at the top here, um, she was called the Queen of Cakes, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyhow, um, Michael Zersbun, who is the editor at uh, uh, Little Brown, um, is, is going to talk to us a little bit about these things and about these books. He was mentioning just before we came on uh, live um, that that none none of these are new recipes anymore, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, first, thank you so much for having me on on the program. Um, and and yeah, none of them are new. But I had been so influenced by Meta as a young cook baker recipe writer, recipe editor, cookbook editor, um, that it just seemed like such a tragedy to me that all of her books, which had sold hundreds of thousands of copies in uh, the 70s, 80s, 90s, had kind of sadly fallen out of print. And I thought that the kind of baking that she did was the kind of baking that had really influenced America and needed to be out there in a version for a new generation. So
0: Yeah, they were very um, lucid recipes and very precise. Everything about them was precise. So you, they were like foolproof. I mean, Dory Greenspan writes that kind of a, a, a recipe, too.
2: Um, yeah, and, and actually in the introduction to Happiness is Baking, Dory says, more or less, that Maida taught her everything she knows
0: about baking. I don't doubt um, it for a minute. There's a lot of similarities yeah. there.
1: Well, he, say, he says it on the back of the two books we have right now in our hands, too. Right.
0: So, <laughs> so anyhow, so you decided, I mean, I remember getting the press release that said um, that uh, Happiness is Baking was going to be released. and And stupidly, I wrote to the publicist and said, uh, could we do a phone interview with Maida? <laughs> she said, well, I, I don't really think so since she's, she told me 103, you say, she never made it, 103, it was 102. So I really knew I was not going to get an interview with her. I knew she had been around <laughs> a long time, but I didn't realize how long. And then, of course, yeah. that was shortly after this book was published, she died, right?
2: Yeah, we published it on, in early April, and she passed away in early June. Um, and, uh, while I actually never had a chance to meet Maida outside of her, her own books and working on this, I, I do know from her sister in law, Connie, who helped her prepare the book, uh, and was her caretaker, uh, in the last year or so of her, her life, um, that she, she did look upon it with pleasure. When we finally got the finished copies, uh, she was able to see one in, in March of, uh, last year. Um, it, you know, to me it was just such a great thing to be able to bring out, uh, a new collection of her greatest hits, uh, just, um, you know, one, one last, uh, crumb to, to save her before, before passing on.
0: I mean, she was quite a character. I was just thinking. I mean, did anybody ever write a biography of her?
2: Um, you know, I don't think so. And uh, you know, one funny thing about Maida, I think, is that she probably told the best story about her own life. I, I wish <laughs> that she had written a memoir. <laughs> um, right. You know, you, you kind of found these uh, idiosyncratic glimpses uh, into her life through the head notes. And I I think, actually, that the story goes, I I have no idea how apocryphal this is, that she first came to the attention of the New York Times food editor, Craig Claiborne, um, after saying that she was going to cook elephant meat when a Republican (laughs) convention was going to be hosted near her home in Florida. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I definitely had a, a... penchant for storytelling and getting people's attention for sure, and totally self-made
0: uh-huh yeah, so, um, so you, you now can research and produce this uh,
1: biography
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's, it's my mantle to take on now
1: well, well she has she had some pretty intriguing husbands too by the, by the, by the, by the way I read the book She's a
0: good-looking lady. <laughs> you know, so, what what kind of things should we know and, uh, about her?
2: Oh, wow. Well, I, I would say that she is the the kind of person who um, would test a recipe 25 times uh, to make sure that it was right.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, there's a story that is confirmable um, that uh, when uh, sever Magazine was doing a, a story on her that was going to include some recipes, they had, had called her and said that, you know, I, I guess it was the brownies weren't cooking the right way or the cake wasn't setting or something. And she set them straight on the phone and said, you know, bake it for one hour. And then, you know, 58 minutes later, she called Tess Kitchen back and said, you ready to take that out of the oven? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that kind of precision is not something that I am able to employ in my own life or in my own baking. But okay. thank God for somebody who had that and was able to set it down. Um, and, you know, I would say there's that side of her personality, which you might think, wow, what a strict disciplinarian. What a martinet!" No, um, and yet, she also carried a purse full of uh, cellophane-wrapped brownies to give people. Yeah, and so, she's,
0: when, what was the event? She threw all into the James audience. Beard oh, the, uh, uh, the yeah, James Beard Awards. Yeah, she was inducted
2: into the James Beard Hall of, Cookbook Hall of Fame, and uh, you know, like a uh, winner throwing roses into the audience or something. She <laughs> threw her Palm Beach brownies.
0: <laughs> what year was that? Do you know? Oh, I don't, I, it I, 19- don't
1: know. It was. 19, it was in nineteen. was ninety nine. I remember it.
0: Nineteen ninety nine. But we would have been there, Oh, we were in the press room. I guess.
1: Well, this, this is cookbook. This is cookbook awards. Oh, well, So we oh, wouldn't right. have. We would right. we, we we tended not to go to the cookbook awards. We 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 preferred the other one where they had more to eat and drink.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, these. I think this was the Hall of Fame that he's talking about.
1: Well, she she's very precise. There's no she question is. about that. And but but enjoyable to read nevertheless.
2: Yeah, precise and fun. What a what a great mix. And what a
1: what a great friend to have. I'm sure. I'm sure she would always come by with something new to try.
2: Yeah, the the story that I have heard about her friendship with Wolfgang Puck. That's the, just fun,
0: man. The, <laughs> <laughs>
2: they. Um, I I think that and you know, I, you know. I I think later probably would have been the first person to say that uh, embellishment is the seasoning of of life. Um, So I don't feel too bad about uh, playing fast and loose with some of these details. But um, I I think that Wolfgang Puck uh, approached her um, because he had read something in the New York Times or something like that. And, uh, And they became fast friends. And he would always pay these pilgrimages to her in Florida. And she would come out to visit with him in California. And it it just seemed like this incredible kind of like uh uh baked good-based pen pal program that I would love to develop in my own life sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, of course, yeah, this pastry chef
0: sing. was Shelly Yard for a long, long time, right? Mm, Shelly Yard. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, yeah, so anyhow, but go ahead. Oh,
2: the... um just, you know, this is making me remember the, the headnotes that I've read, the introductions, um, the stories that people have told about how her freezer was just filled with frozen cookies, almost always pre wrapped so that they could, you know, fall in her purse by the time that she was ready to give them to somebody. And it just, I, I, I feel like what an incredible posture towards the world. Um, Connie once told me her her sister in law yeah. uh, that the the heater family called it cookie diplomacy.
0: <laughs> called what the cookie the one? Cookie, oh,
1: cookie diplomacy.
0: Cookie diplomacy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Trump should go to that school. Huh?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Dory of course did that whole pop up thing with cookies with her son. Remember, and she really was influenced by. Cookie, she's a big-time cookie person. You know, so, yeah, so so basically, um, set the stage. I mean, she comes on center stage at what era in terms of these classic sort of, I would say, homey kind of desserts.
2: I want to say in the seventies. Um, I should probably be fact-checked on on that, but it was it was the seventies and early eighties that I would say were maybe her heyday in terms of publishing. Uh Um, but then, you know, you you look at these iconic recipes uh, of hers. Um, the one I'm thinking of right now is the East 62nd street lemon cake, which is a a lemon bunt cake that has a a really interesting kind of uh, icing on it. Um, and people, I mean, that, that recipe has lived multiple lives exactly. on the New York Times website. You know, and even before that, I think, in clippings in the New York Times cookbook and so on. And um, then right around the time, I think, actually, that we had decided to do this Greatest Hits collection, just out of the blue, another person at the Times wrote a story about how great that particular lemon cake really. was. Um, it just showed me the longevity of a great recipe. that um, there are some things that are very trendy and, and cool, um, but something like, you know, like great slicing cake that you can have and that'll make you happy every time is the kind of recipe that really can endure. And she wrote so many of them.
0: Well I mean so aside from precision, which it means her recipes worked what else was about was it about that sent her skyrocketing in popularity cool. well, her her wit of course
2: yeah <laughs> well I, I i do think it just and this comes more from my experience publishing other cookbooks um i think that when you're bringing a cookbook into your kitchen it's like bringing a person into your home
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um, and she was just somebody who you, you mentioned her wit uh, who was who was somebody you really wanted to have in your home? You could trust her. She would always make you laugh, and she would make you want to do things that you maybe didn't believe that you could do. Um, but with her help, you were able to. In terms of the flavors, um, I, I, I think some of them are just very, um, classic, old fashioned flavors that everybody loves. I don't think that she gave too much. Uh, concern to the idea of being hipper on trend, yeah. and just wanted to make things that other people liked. And with that kind of generosity of, of focus, I would say, um, you're able to go a, a long way. I, I do think that the, the big hinge moment, though, in terms of her going from being a home baker who had a, a bunch of different side projects to get her desserts out into the world um, to being somebody who uh, a huge part of America knew and loved was the result of Craig Claiborne, the New York times um, dining editor who did so much at the newspaper to, uh, to direct attention to the people in America who were cooking really interesting things and trying to build a, a culture around it. And, Um, I believe that it was either the Republican convention and the (laughs) elephant (laughs) meat omelet that she was making um, at at her her husband's restaurant, or um, it could be that maybe he had heard of that and wanted to go to Florida anyway. Um, I've also heard tell that he had uh, kind of just sniffed around and, and asked people who's the most knowledgeable person about food in Florida, and multiple people directed him to Maida. Uh-huh. Um, and then it was through that platform and exposure uh, that her recipes first uh, got noticed. And then once they got noticed, he had suggested to her, "Hey, you should you should do a book." And then she landed at uh, Alfred A. Knopf, right. venerable publisher, home of. Many, many incredible, uh, iconic American cooks like Julia Child, um, and, uh, and the books just began to work and then one book turned into two books and a whole suite of them.
0: Right. Well, have you baked from her recipes? I,
2: I have. I, I was, uh, her, I, <laughs> I was a Meta Heater fan before I became a Meta Heater editor. Okay. Um, my favorite thing to make of hers is the Budapest coffee cake. I was going to ask you is... about that. Adam. <laughs> oh, it's just great. It's this. Um, uh, it's a bundt cake, and I I love a bundt. Um, <laughs> and it has this kind of shaggy layer throughout it that has cinnamon and currants, I believe, and nuts, maybe a little cocoa, and um, it's basically it's as though you took a coffee cake. And you put all the crumbly stuff on the inside of the cake rather than on the top, uh-huh. and so it's a lot more self-contained. I find it a little bit uh, easier to keep the crumbs out of my beard when I'm eating <laughs> it. I um, think it keeps longer, and just the flavors are are so right. And it also looks like a dream when you cut it. Um, I think that she really loved a dessert that uh, that you ate with your eyes first. Um, I'm thinking of. Uh, a cheesecake that she did that sometimes had 13 rings of white to chocolate to white to chocolate. Um, her her bullseye cheesecake or polka dot cheesecake, or
3: um,
2: even her Palm Beach brownies, which had uh, secret um, York peppermint patties yes. smuggled inside, <laughs> and and uh, those kinds of things that just delight you. I, I think you want to make again and again. And for me, it's the Budapest coffee cake. Okay.
0: Well, um, I think that yeah, you you're carrying the torch. I think for forward for this wonderful, amazing woman, and uh, I'm glad to see uh, the pages coming out again from this uh, from your publisher. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, it's it's a delight, <laughs> and I'm glad I we, come up with you because you seem to have enjoyed her and. All the projects very well and very much.
2: Oh, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, it, it was uh, a great pleasure to just a few weeks before she passed to decide that we would do these new two books: um, "Chocolate is Forever" and "Cookies are Magic." Both statements that I believe uh, Maida would wholeheartedly endorse.
0: I love both. Um, the, <laughs> they're great. They're absolutely great titles.
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank
0: okay, you. Michael. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we caught up with you. Yes, uh,
2: thank
0: you for having me. Keep in touch.
2: I I will. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. And stay with us after the break because we're going to stay on the same subject. Right. Right? Yes. So, again, we'll be back in just a moment, so don't go away.
3: Podcasting
2: services for on-the-menu radio are provided by ASP station, www.aspstation.net.
3: Welcome
0: back. Um, Next guest is... Well, I knew that we were going to call her in, in um, the UK, um, but when she started talking I realized she was Australian, and uh, it's probably the most complete book I've ever had seen uh, on the subject of cocoa. And the recipes are absolutely delicious.
1: And, and the pictures make you want to lick the pages.
0: Yes. <laughs> Well, we're on a phone um, to the U.K. at the moment and interviewing an author, Sue Quinn, and her wonderful book, Cocoa, and, um, or Cocoa, what did we say?
4: Well, I call it Cocoa.
0: Okay. Yep. An Exploration yep. of Chocolate with Recipes. And when we picked up Sue on the phone, I was thrilled to know that her accent, so she's Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Which tickled us to death, yeah, as we love Australia. So um, this is an amazing book. My first question is: there are a ton of books about chocolate and cacao and cocoa. Um, what did you want to add to that bulk of information?
4: Yeah, I mean, you're, yes, you're. Abs- I mean, you are absolutely right. The world isn't short of, of of books with containing chocolate recipes. But I mean, I I've written a number of cookbooks and when I was thinking about the next one that I wanted to write, I wanted to make it a cookbook that had a really good story um, because I think we may be reaching, um, you know, cookbook uh, cookbook overload in terms of the ability of finding, you know, recipes and instructions on how exactly. to cook our, you know, cook, cook a meal. We just have to dive into the internet for that, don't we? Yes. So I wanted to write a book that had a really good story and I realized one day that my um, obsession with chocolate, um, that chocolate, in fact, was the best story, the best food story that there is, uh, because we can trace the story. I mean, humans are almost universally, uh, although I have discovered quite a number of people who tell me they don't like chocolate, but I think it's a a global phenomenon that people love chocolate. In, in, in quite an emotional and physical way, and we can all relate to chocolate and its story. We can trace it right back to ancient peoples, to ancient times, yeah, pre ancient civilizations. Date,
0: the one you, I'm sorry, you, give us the date that you um, and you cite in your book BC.
4: Well, I mean, uh, more and more about the story of chocolate and humans. Uh, relationship with chocolate is unfolding as archaeologists do their work the, the magical thing about chocolate is that it leaves it it can leave its genetic fingerprint on archaeological material so traces of theobromine um, can be found on pieces of ceramic and pottery but as it as it stands we think that that well, we know that humans were were consuming chocolate um, as far back as three and a half thousand BC. In <laughs> you, you know, I mean, in in I,
0: I like your your question where you say, "Well, I mean, you don't put it quite this way," but you you wonder whatever possessed human beings actually attempt to eat this. <laughs> Or to drink well, well, it, I guess, the first
4: thing. It, I mean, it is absolutely intriguing in one way. If you've ever been to a cacao plantation and you see these absolutely wondrous cacao pods dangling from trees in all sorts of different colors, yellows and burgundies and oranges and greens, um, to look at that and then to, to, to kind of wonder how on earth uh, a human got, Took, took that pod and was able to transfer it or transform it into a, 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 a delicious drink it, it is quite something. But if you actually look at, at the at the way those ancient peoples produced food, which was, a lot of it was ground up on a, on a grinding stone. Uh, they ground chilies and nuts and seeds. I suppose it's not that surprising that they discovered these beans inside these wondrous pods and, and thought, well, you know, why not? We'll grind these and see what happens. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a
3: wonderful
4: yeah, abs- absolutely. And I, I, you know, I would love to have, um, and it, w- <clears throat> it was women that always did this laborious work. Uh, <laughs> of course. it would have been magical to be there, you know, the, f- the first time they ground these beans for long enough so that all the, all those wonderful, um, fats and oils inside the bean um, effectively melted to produce this shiny, aromatic paste uh, that we now know as
1: chocolate. But it, it was a pretty complicated process too, and you and you go, and you go over that. But, but somewhere somewhere in there, there's a European called Lindt. Is it Lind or Lint? Uh, yes, who, the chocolate who, who 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 figu- who figured out. How you could make chocolate more approachable.
4: Well, yes. I mean, the thing about chocolate is that, it, uh, you know, up until the Industrial Revolution, uh, which is the middle of the 19th century, chocolate was a completely different beast.
3: Got you it, know, back in, it.
4: The, back in the ancient civilizations, it was a very gritty drink. Right. Uh, and then uh, once Europeans discovered it it became they, they could turn it into these gritty blocks which could be grated or or broken down with with liquids added to make a drink but it was really the industrial revolution and people like lint who came up with machines that could grind the beans uh, fine enough uh to to make to produce uh, a food or a snack that was that was palatable um and that would unlock all those beautiful oils and make a, a smooth and creamy, uh, a smooth and creamy thing for us to taste. But it took machinery to do that. It really, actually, isn't possible just with elbow grease.
0: But the mole, mole existed, you know, with the, the, the chocolate and the, the with the chilies.
4: The mole, yes. sorry, that's um, yes, absolutely. And that's and and I visited Mexico um, as part of my research for this book, and saw chocolate being ground by hand on on these stone slabs and turned into mole. And of course, that's one of the most famous sources. Uh, of, the me- of the Mexican cuisine, um, not always containing chocolate, but quite quite often containing cacao. But it's in, in that dish, it's almost used like a spice. Um, right. it's but mixed I, up it,
0: with it's a very complicated sauce. And I, I went the full length making this with the 25,000 ingredients for yeah. a fair guest who then informed me that he, he's one in a million. We <laughs> didn't like chocolate.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I think I, you know, the first time I tasted mole made in Mexico with chocolate, I was expecting a, a, you know a, a chocolate overdose. But of course, no. it's not. It's not a chocolate bar. It's no. it's it's a very. It's an echo, isn't it, of co- of cocoa and and it, it, all those dozens and dozens of ingredients including cacao, are combined into this whole to make a rich, but you are not qu- you can't quite put your finger on it sometimes, what it is that's, that is the chocolate note. Um, it's, it's a magical, mole is a magical thing.
0: I think so. Now, you, you, you were in Mexico. You were other places doing your research too. I want you to tell us where all you went. And also, I, I, this book is so amazing. I just wonder how long it took you to do the research of it.
4: Well, it 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 took a long time. It took the best part of a couple of years to do the research, and I'm and I'm I'm sure you're <clears throat> as aware as as anybody is that that book advances don't necessarily fund you <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, sure. a, a trip around the world. I mean, honestly, this I I, I just was so fascinated by 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 the. By the story of chocolate and it is it is a global story because it stretches from i guess the crucible uh which is Mesoamerica, the, the parts of the world that we now know as central america mexico and the upper amazon um but the cacao belt as they call it that area 20 degrees north and south of the equator where cacao grows all the stories in that part of, the, in that belt of the, of the planet are absolutely fascinating. So I did start in Mexico because it was, it was the part of the world I thought that I could get closest to the way chocolate may have been made, you know, in the time mm, of the yes. Aztecs. Yeah, and and I think I did discover. You know, I I was lucky and fortunate enough to find um, women who showed me how to make chocolate. They remember their their mothers and their grandmothers making chocolate by hand. They literally get down on their hands and knees and and grind the toasted cacao beans. Um, it's a very arduous process. And one woman I spoke to told me how she would sit on her on her mother's on the back of her mother's legs as her mother was, was going through this arduous process of grounding the cacao beans. It was like a rocking horse, (laughs)
3: Uh,
4: which I thought was just, just beautiful. And, and sometimes for big celebrations, cacao is chocolate is still made that way. Uh, Clearly, mostly machinery does it these days, but the culture is, is, is still alive in Mexico, which is why, which is why I chose it. Um, I also traveled to, um, to Sicily, uh, and uh, that has a very rich um, chocolate culture, uh, because it's, it's obviously part of Italy now, but it used to be controlled by the Spanish, and the Spanish were, of course, uh, the, the Europeans who uh, discovered chocolate when they conquered the Aztec Empire and, and they were the ones that r- introduced it to Europe. Um, so there was lots of delicious exploring to be done in Sicily and uh, parts of Italy uh, where chefs really embraced chocolate as an ingredient uh, in, in savoury cooking as much as in sweet cooking um, and that was very interesting uh, it was It was used as as a way for chefs to to kind of show off uh the wealth of the households that they were cooking for, because, of course, in the, in the 16th and 17th centuries, cacao was extremely expensive. It was beyond the reach of, of, of ordinary people. So it, it, was, it was used on the wealthiest tables in, in all sorts of ludicrous things, sometimes simply as a way of showing off the wealth of the household and the, and the culinary uh, showmanship um, of the chef. So lots of travel uh, in, in Italy um, and in Spain, Catalonia, there's a. Um, the Catalans have a very rich tradition of using chocolate uh, in 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 their cooking. In some of the picadas, the the, the pastes that they add to enrich uh, and add depth of flavour to their to their stews and sauces. Um, so it, it, it was an arduous process, as you can <laughs> tell,
1: researching this book.
4: It was an easy task. <laughs> I,
1: I wanted to um, t- Yes,
4: I know. I know.
1: I wanted to take you in two different directions. Mm. W- w- one is why, is, why is it that it was Quakers? The Quakers. The Quakers, uh, uh, the how, the Quakers how, yeah. How did, how did it happen, the Quakers, the Fries, the Terries, the Cadbury's, and so on? How did how did they come to have so much control of the trade? That's question number one. Yeah, I mean,
4: it, 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 well, it's, that's it's question number fascinating.
1: That's question number one. I want to get the second question in because I want you to just flow right into it because something different has happened in the last 20 years or so which is the emergence of artisanal chocolate mm. of, a, of a very fine nature categorized yes. by people like Valrona, for example and, and yeah. where, did, where did they come from and, and how is it they managed to exist when their product is so expensive? Yeah,
4: yeah. Well, gosh, they're two, they're two big questions. Quaker, um, I mean... The, the, the question of Quakers, the link between Quakers and and chocolate, is fascinating, and I and I don't know whether I, I truly uh, I, I truly solved solved the question. I think it has a lot to do in the uh, in the 19th century. Um, chocolate has always had uh, uh, people have, people have long had different views about chocolate. Um, some people in the catholic church for instance or the the early early days of missionaries in uh in south america were unsure about chocolate chocolate is a very powerful uh powerful substance in many ways it's full of lots of compounds that energize and um uh you know can keep you awake that that that, that's Part of the part of the features of of why it was embraced by the Aztecs, for instance, it would energise armies. It would it would give women energy in childbirth. But some religious this made some religious leaders unsure of whether chocolate was a good thing or not. Um,
3: aphrodisiac.
4: And, <laughs> it, it was nato- it, it claimed to be an, an aphrodisiac. Not quite sure whether it was. It perhaps it was. As the beans were being fermented, um, they, they tipped over into being alcoholic. That that's one potential reason why it was called an aphrodisiac. Um, so the church has always been slightly unsure about whether it ch- whether chocolate was a good thing or not. Whether you could eat uh, drink chocolate drinks at Lent was chocolate a food or was it a drink? So slightly contentious. Um, I think as far as the Quakers were concerned, who obviously alcohol is forbidden uh, if you're a Quaker, chocolate was. Actually, a good alternative, um, potentially uh, an interesting drink alternative um, to, to alcohol, um, and that is is one potential reason why the Quakers became involved in it. It was a it was a wholesome, um, uh, you know, non-alcoholic uh, beverage that that they could get themselves behind. There's also um, the fact that Quakers weren't allowed to go to um, university, if I'm not wrong, and studying. And, Study for some of the professions, um, so it was to industry that they had to look to to make their living um, so you 'll find that Quakers were very enterprising leaders uh, in banking in industries where you had to to, to, to build the, build the business yourself so I think that it, it just turned out that Quakers embraced chocolate as as a business and as a wholesome business um, i mean the whole in the whole history of the of the Cadbury's uh, involvement um, in chocolate is is also fascinating because yeah. they were very, very... I mean, really you know. well,
3: well, it,
4: well it is, yes, yeah. so and they were able to build a big chocolate empire by looking after uh, their employees, by providing education and pensions and um, wages really making a family out of the employees who threw themselves behind the chocolate making process so so there's that I mean they're they're a long way removed I suppose from this new generation of of artisan chocolate makers or craft chocolate makers um, which we've seen emerge over the past 20 years and it's it's been a wonderful and exciting time, um, if you're a chocolate lover, to, to see this happening because these businesses have, have essentially rediscovered the flavor of chocolate rather than producing uh, chocolate confectionery bars, uh, which are mainly sugar and fats. They're really trying to tease out the inherent flavors, which are, which are just wonderful in cacao beans so that we taste the chocolate, not, not the sugar and the, and the fats. Um, and of course, in the U.S., craft chocolate uh, industry basically has, has 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 grown out of the of, of the U.S., um, where uh, you know people have started to uh, make chocolate themselves in their garages and repurposing <laughs> vintage equipment, and some of those businesses have grown into the craft, the big name craft chocolate. Uh, you know companies that that we know today, and are, and are just doing wonderful service to um, not only people who love chocolate, but also to farmers because they tend to these smaller chocolate makers tend to pay cacao growers uh, a, a fair price for their beans. Yeah, what's um, right, his uh, name? Escholisi.
1: Sean. Sean
4: Escholisi. Yes chocolate
0: university yeah. where he has the students go and live in these villages and interact
1: with the yeah. villagers no, no, no.
4: so yes because traditionally and, and traditionally since mass chocolate became, a, became a, you know, a, a thing chocolate produced on an industrial scale by the likes of Cadbury's and Hershey's and that kind of thing um, the producers of the cacao beans were left out of the process, obviously. Um, but it's 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 wonderful that the that the craft chocolate movement is 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 rejecting that approach and. Uh, involving the growers and the farmers in the chocolate making process, uh, remunerating them in a, in a fair way, and also teaching them more about, um, they're, sharing, they're sharing their knowledge about how to grow uh, and, and make chocolate in, in a way that produces the best possible flavors.
1: Now, this is just not, not just about chocolate bars, however.
4: Yeah, there's, we're, there's, we're a, there's, that.
1: A, there's a positive gold mine of, uh, of, of recipes, of recipes in, in this book. That are just so, so intriguing. I mean, you just you just want to make them all from beginning to end. I and mean, they said,
0: so, "Oh, well mean, where, where did you get this one? Apricot and brown butter crumble cake with chocolate and rye."
3: Um.
4: <laughs> well, what I what I did was one of the things that really intrigued me when i when I started to drill down into what was happening in the in this chocolate renaissance and all these new chocolate makers rediscovering the the real. Essence and the flavour in cacao beans was that the flavour profile. If you if you want to talk about it in technical terms, I suppose the f- the flavour profile of cacao is much more complicated and complex than than most of us consider. So, depending on where the cacao beans are grown, uh, depending on on the the terroir, so the environmental conditions, the rainfall, the sunshine, and and of course the way the grower handles the beans the beans can have a whole array of complex flavors that you just don't notice if you eat a bar of chocolate confectionery. So those flavors can range from, you know, spicy cinnamon notes, perhaps a bit of black pepper, right through to citrus flavors or or uh, berries, um, again through to kind of umami notes or or savory flavors. And I just thought, well, chefs and, and home cooks, chocolate as something to be used in cakes and biscuits, which is all, all fantastic, but it has, with all this complexity of flavor, there's an opportunity to harness those and use them in more imaginative ways, in savory cooking, pairing them with ingredients that might at first not seem logical, but actually, if you look at, for instance, um, the aroma molecules in uh, cacao beans and blue cheese, for example, um, They actually have aroma compounds in common. So, if you pair those uh, ingredients in the right way with the right balance, you can actually enhance uh, those blue. Cheese notes, you know, in a way that that really works beautifully. And there's a past edition in my book of gorgonzola and and dark uh, chocolate uh, and walnut and sage uh, or rosemary. In fact, amazing recipes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and,
0: and listeners you really, you really we can't convey the full depth of this book. But it, it's wonderful, a really wonderful well, contribution. Let,
1: let, let's, let's thank you. Let's finish up with the with the. Pavlova with chocolate.
0: <laughs> I never made pavlova with chocolate.
1: Well, well, this this lady did, or, or somebody did.
4: I, I well, I've certainly made it many, many times. Yep. And, and,
1: and what what's the secret?
4: The secret, well, the secret to pavlova, or the secret to I'm just I'm just actually to,
1: trying to op- the secret to chocolate pavlova.
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me open let me open up the book because I in my in our. Uh, in our current environment, where we don't have too many eggs, it's it's, it's dropped off That's by. That's true. It's you the same problem. Yeah. With yeah. The well, it's 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 not too bad at the moment. I've got to say, I don't live. Uh, I don't live in London. I think um, London is where the big the big shortages are at the moment. Oh, um,
1: all, all, all you all you need to do is look at the picture. Yeah, and the picture <laughs> is wonderful.
4: It crackle's
0: just the way it's supposed to. As, you know, I'll tell you a secret. Is um, using the exact same recipe, um, when I'm in Australia, the recipe works, when I'm not in Australia, it doesn't work, and it has to do with you, but anyway.
4: Yeah, no. no, I mean, basically, this is, I, and I mucked around with this a lot because y- y- you make, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with what a Pavlova is, but but Pavlova is, is an iconic Australian stroke. New Zealand dish. We, we we fight with each other <laughs> <I> over <know. laughs> who over who invented it. <laughs> um, but basically, you make a big meringue base. So you whip up chocolate. Sorry, you whip up sugar and egg whites. Uh, and then with my recipe, once you you've got that lovely meringue mixture, you you pour in melted chocolate and. The key to it is not having the chocolate too hot and then not mixing the chocolate in completely so that um, it, mm-hmm. once you combine it gently, you have these swirls of chocolate, um, uh, almost stripples of chocolate. So once it goes into the oven, you get some, some lovely melted chocolate bits as well uh, hidden among the meringue. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite a decadent dish. And then this dish, I've, I've suggested putting ro- uh, rhubarb on top, but, but really there are great. so many things that you can pair this with. Yeah, sue
1: right. Su- Su- Su Quinn, what a what a wonderful experience yeah. to have the opp- to have the opportunity to, to talk to you j- 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 just proves a good thing has come out of Bournemouth even though you don't want them to <laughs>
4: cheeky.
1: Cheeky, cheeky. Me, we, we, i'm
4: i'm just absolutely delighted that you love the book i'm i I'm, I'm truly delighted oh,
0: it's, it's <laughs> <fabulous>. <laughs> I mean, Thank I could hardly wait for you to so you do your next one. I guess you need a
4: break before you tackle another on one. I, I I do, and I, and I must say, even for me, I didn't want to see another piece of chocolate for quite a few <laughs> months after I after I put this one. <laughs> but yes, I'm lovely to talk to you when uh, when when I have when I have my next idea hatched. Right.
0: good to meet you or meet you. Sue Quinn, or you, I guess it is, Sue Quinn, and the book again is co- Cocoa or Cacao, an exploration of chocolate with recipes, and the recipes themselves are worth the book. Thank you. Thank you
3: so much for your time. Podcasting services for On the Menu
2: Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net.
0: Well, for our last segment, I mean, I don't know if you'd call it a, um, a boon mean a gift or a blessing or some a, a bad <laughs> situation to be sheltering in place with an entire box full of delicious toffees <laughs> but but that's what we've been doing uh, so here we are talking to Michelle williamson about her company
1: and and her totally delicious products which we've been consuming and it's going to go straight to your waistline but it tastes wonderful anyway
0: we're talking to michelle williamson uh, who is called mel i gather and she has a company called mel's toffee which is sublime i mean they- The toffee is fabulous, Michelle. Um, Thank you. Anyway, well, how did you come up with this idea? Well, actually,
5: Mel. Is three people. It stands for me. I'm Michelle. And then I have two daughters, Erin and Lauren. Okay. And, um, husband Glenn didn't make the cut, so he's a style <laughs> partner. I started off as a 5 year pretzel company, and then I was making turtles, and then I was making, so everything, and it ended up being like that. Lucy. Lucille Ball, you know, um so <laughs> we, she's got everything, you know, all the chocolate running off the conveyor belt. And I just said, you know what, I wanna do one thing and do it well and keep it simple, but now with all these flavors running through my brain, it's become what I had before. Uh-huh. But with one product, but now I've got up to eight different, eight or nine different flavors now. You know, a couple of them are seasonal, so. Well,
0: now, have you always been a confectioner then?
5: No, actually, I graduated from Central with, um, a degree in corporate fitness. Isn't that a switch? And now I'm making fitness. candy.
3: <laughs> yeah.
5: And, um, so, you know, but going through school and paying for it myself, I had to find jobs to pay for school. And what jobs do kids that age usually have? Waitress. So okay, all right. So being a waitress and being around food, you know, once that food bug gets in you, it's hard to get out. You know, then started the Food Network and... You know, I'd come home from work at the hospital, and and I'd be watching Food Network, and so that's how, like, the whole food thing came. And then I figured, well, everyone, you know, candy makes everyone happy, yeah. so we'll
0: just stick with that. <laughs> well, as I said to you, in times like this, everyone should have a little toffee. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, and now,
5: you know, a couple weeks from now, uh, tomorrow... <laughs>
0: A year from now, always, yes. But, you know, you know toffee is, a, I'm, as I told you, I mean, I'm not a sweets person. You could ask Peter to confirm that. And certainly not a candy person. But I've always had a weakness for toffee. I mean, what is it that makes toffee toffee as opposed to anything else? I mean, is it um, the butter or the, the sugar? It's when a, yeah, it's
5: a, it's a combination of the butter and the sugar. And then you boil it down to, you know, a certain degree. And then when you pour it out and it hardens, that's what that's what makes the toffee is the butter and sugar boiling to, you know, the really high temperature. And then when you pull it off, if you haven't burned it yet, yeah, then, uh, you know, that's what makes it. But with mine, it's the different flavors that make it unique. It's the flavors that you don't find in other toffee companies that makes, you know, makes it gourmet, and, you know, I'm sure with the package that I sent you, you know, you saw toffees that you've never seen before.
0: Right, well, we never knew you could have flavors of toffees to start well, with. We, right,
5: we, and that's what sets me apart from other toffee companies.
1: We, we, actually, we actually did have a long liaison with a company that made Brittle, Oh, okay. I remember, which, which is very similar, right? It's very similar to toffee.
5: I think the difference between brittle and toffee is the adding of baking soda. I think it's baking soda. Well, the because baking, baking was, soda. Yeah, I the, think that I think that's it, and it makes it bubble really, you know, really bubbly at the end, and that's what puts brings the air into it and makes it crisper. I guess you
1: could say, and lighter. The interesting. Interesting thing is Michelle in. In England, where I grew up, toffee is soft, really, and you suck it rather than being hard and you chomp it.
5: Oh, okay. That's interesting.
1: Because I have
5: friends who are sending my toffee, they have family over there, and every time they go, they bring my toffee to their family in England. So I guess you could say it's international. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it'll go down well. My my native land is 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 big on all things confectionery. Yes, it is. So, oh, yeah. But it, but it, it's interesting. The first first time I came over toffee in the United States, I thought. I'm, I'm really worried I might break my teeth because it's hard. Because oh. it's because it's hard. So um,
5: mine, have you tried mine? Do you try mine?
1: I've tried every flavor you had. I, Look, <laughs> I <had. laughs>
5: <laughs> like, do you think it's really as hard as the other ones that you've had, though?
1: All I know is it's really it's really superb, and I just wish I okay. could. Uh, it put of melts I, in your mouth when you put it in your right. mouth. Yeah, I just wish I could stop eating it. <laughs> I, was, I no, wish I you could stop eating it, too, so you leave some for me. <laughs> but I, but well, I, you know, you've got
5: the zipper on the top, so you take a piece, you zip it up, and you put it in the fridge.
1: Yeah, well, we haven't done that. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need, no need to put it in the refrigerator when you're going to eat some more of it in five minutes. Right. Okay, so, so now you, off, had this, you had this wonderful <laughs> product, and you know, how
0: did you get to having it actually a, a company. It's not that easy to start a, a candy company. I mean, the competition is intense.
5: It's, yeah, and you've got to be everywhere all the time, you know, and, and it's hard. It's You've got many hats to wear, many balls in the air all, all the time, except for now, of course, but that's everybody. Um, and... You know, you have to know your competition. You have to see what they're doing, like Damon John says. Look at your competition, see what they're doing, and do something different that would draw people to you. So I looked at my competition, saw they had, like, the same three flavors, and I said, you know what? I'm going to do something different, and that's why I have all those different flavors. And if you look at the packages, they all have different colors. All the labels are a different color, and the reason why I did that is because I have a daughter who has a dairy allergy. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the store to get a dairy-free sour cream or a dairy-free oh, cream cheese or ingredients in something I'm making and come home with chives <laughs> instead of plain. Because wow. the labels are all the same. Well, with mine, there was a, I don't know what the name is, but it, it was a blue label or it was an orange label or... It had orange and blue on it, so you know, and that's you know what identifies each different um, flavor is the color of the label.
1: I caught a lucky one the other day, Michelle. I've kept this as a secret, but I will re- reveal. From <laughs> <I will, laughs> I will, I will me, I will reveal my secret. <laughs> Anne, Anne said that she th- she thought that the Mexican chocolate toffee was a bit mm-hmm. was a bit. Uh, how did you describe it? I, I it, don't remember. It was a bit spicy. spicy. I said I liked it. Yes. So I just so I just had my first piece of that just after just after lunch, and I have a I have a feeling I may be able to capture most of those.
5: (laughs) (laughs) That one, I I had wanted to make that flavor for a long time, and because no one else, well, again, nobody else is doing it, and I wanted something that was way different from the pack, which that one is, and one that stands out. And so you've got the Saigon cinnamon, you've got the Dutch cocoa powder, and then you have the cayenne pepper, which at the very end, you get a little bit of heat as you're swallowing. And what I tell people is it starts off tasting like a teddy gram, Uh and then it ends up like an angry teddy (laughs) gram. You have a little tiny bit of heat in the end. But it's good, though, and people like Spice gravitate towards that.
0: Yeah, I, mean, no, I, no. I like the um, stout one. Oh, that yes. one's
5: good, and I make that with Right Brain CEO stout. Right Brain is um, a brewery in Traverse City. That's what I in understand, yeah. So it's- and um, so I describe that one as a, a coffee toffee with beer in it. And the slogan that I use for that is, you can have your beer and eat it, too. Because <laughs> if you haven't taken it, too, this one, you can have your beer and eat it, too.
1: Yeah, how, how do you go out to the marketplace, Michelle? This, this oh, is, hang this on is, just a second. I've got my
5: dog on my lap. Okay. And she's all tangled. Okay. Go on, though. Okay.
0: How now, do did, I go Did out? you start making this in your kitchen? I mean, how did you start?
5: I started making it in my kitchen. And, and that's when my daughters were in, in grade school. And what I would do is I would send them to school. They were my little marketing minions. So I would, <laughs> waste my labor. And so I would send them to the store and I'd send them to school with a different, with a couple of different flavors and they'd give it to their friends. Friends would give it to their moms. Moms started <laughs> calling me. And that's how, and then I, you know, and I just kept kept getting orders. I said, you know what, I think I'm on to something. I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to start doing this. And then, you know, when everything that went with that, you know, you got to get licensed and got to find a kitchen and, you know, all those other things that you have to think about, you know, insurance and
0: All that. When you started mainly locally in um, Michigan, right? Right. Okay, so, um, I mean, it is the Michigan product, um, but you've gradually been edging out of that parameter, right? Right. Um, This
5: past year, I started aligning myself with wholesale websites where where the wholesale buyers come in and then they can buy from you. So because of that, um, I've gone from just being in one state to being in twenty six states. I see. And you that's know, that's something good. for me, that's something I'm proud of. That's something, that's you know, amazing. it's not a hobby. This is something that, you know, and this year I was really on a good was, <laughs> was yeah. really on a good track. I mean, I had things I had a lot of fires burning. And, you know, I mean, it's just like with, and my situation is not nearly as dire as a lot of people. And I thank God for that. But, you know, it's hard to go from being in motion and, you know, thinking this is going to be the year to having everything end. So now I'm just trying to be in more wholesale sites and, you know, figure out how can I sell so, without being at events and without, you know, being present to everybody, and it's hard that you have to kind of be inventive too.
0: Now, did you ever do the fancy food show with a Specialty Food Association?
5: They may not even have that this year.
0: I know they're not going to. They canceled.
5: Oh, they did cancel
0: Oh, no, I'm sorry. They didn't cancel it. No, they postponed, it's they kind postponed of up in it. Here. But, you know, they, I don't understand why they won't come out, except they have all these overseas people. Well, the thing is: it's a hospital now, the Center. Exactly.
5: Yep, I've been following that. And, it, you know, unless they just move it to the fall, just go in, and I, I don't know how they're going to even be able to sanitize that.
0: Oh, it's yes, huge. Uh, have you ever been in it?
5: No, I oh, haven't. It's huge. And I haven't. I was thinking of maybe trying to go this year just to see what it was like, but not anymore.
0: <laughs> no. Well, they, they actually have a, a special section for startups. Um, and, and, oh. Yeah. Uh, We've well, get a price break, but I mean, everything's off at, this year, I think.
1: Yeah, the, other, the other thing is that there's there's one on the West Coast. In, Janu- in the winter, in, in January, in San right. Francisco. There used to be one in Chicago, but I think they they eliminated they, that. They, they, eliminated. they just have the winter
0: and the summer now.
1: So, if you, but if you're looking, yeah. if you're looking ahead, if you're planning ahead, and, and you'd like to be in a fancy food show, the one in San Francisco would would still be one you could target because it doesn't start until February. Exactly. And one um. one would hope that this virus thing will have gone away by then. Yeah. Uh,
5: <laughs> hopefully I can't imagine being in the house all the time. Oh, here comes the mail truck.
1: Okay.
5: Um so well I'll just put it on the I'll put it on the front porch. Um well, yeah. but as of like March ninth, I had sent all of my samples to for the selfies. Yeah. And even that's being you know, that because they had like twenty judges And I think 11 of them backed out. Well, I just
0: saw, I got a notice from somebody saying that they won a gold Sophie. For this year? I mean, they made it sound like it was this year. And Mm -hmm. I I was hesitant about that because I didn't think they had, I thought they suspended it for this year. They usually usually get the the, uh, basics kind of lined up after the uh, San Francisco show.
5: Um... Yeah, because I got, because my stuff's in New Jersey waiting, and I think it was supposed to be in June, I think they're doing it, like they're putting everybody's stuff in, thank you, they're putting everybody's stuff in, um, like coolers, and holding it in New Jersey, but, I mean, it just, it is what it is.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know how many, the judging goes on now for a matter of weeks, and it's Tons of people all jammed next to each other, so I can't imagine they got away with doing it. I don't know.
1: Well, anyway, let's let's make sure that people around the country who are interested in this elixir, shall we call it? <laughs> you must you must have a website, I'm sure. I shall, do, can, can uh, My
5: my website is um, www. dot com.
0: And can- M-E-L-S-T-O-F-F-E-E F-F-E-E. dot com. And and you couldn't fulfill right off of the orders on the website?
5: I can. And I do offer wholesale pricing. So if you're interested, you know, if you're a store or, you know, whatever, and you would like wholesale pricing, just email me at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, at Mel's Toppy.
1: Com,
5: and I can
1: send wholesale pricing. Well, we, well, we, we wish you lots of luck and. Uh, and your flavors. How many flavors do you have? About
5: eight, I think. Eight or nine right now. Yeah.
1: And, and, we, and we've we've enjoyed everyone we everyone we had. <laughs>
5: Thank you. This I'm is, glad.
1: This, this is a great endorse- and Not only that, we still have teeth. <laughs>
0: Uh, Michelle, I'm much to you because you've got a great product, and, uh, and I mean, I I like to consider myself a connoisseur of toffee. <laughs> well, I'm glad I passed your test. Yes. So, uh, anyhow, stay healthy, stay safe,
2: yeah, and stay too. productive.
0: And there you have it. And I hope we've sweetened your mood. And for today, and, um, and I, I hope that you're staying safe and healthy, and following all the guidelines yeah, for doing please, so.
1: Please please follow the rules.
0: Follow the rules.
1: And then, and Stay then we'll all, home. And then we'll all get better faster. And in the meantime, not to worry, because you'll have an hour on your hands the next week, same time, same place, as long as you tune in to On The Menu Radio. And until then, bye-bye.